Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have James Mann on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan, A History of the End of the Cold War. In the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was rebelling, I was in training to be a Russian historian and, uh, I suppose, junior criminologist. Uh, So Reagan... Uh, holds a particular fascination for me. He's obviously a paradoxical figure. Um, he started out as uh, a Democrat, uh, was driven into politics by communism or rather anti-communism, at which time he switched to the Republican Party and he rode anti-communism as a political issue to great heights. And then suddenly in the mid-1980s, he had a change of heart James's book is really about that change of heart and the importance that it had for American foreign policy and the end of the Cold War. I enjoyed talking to James today, and uh, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, James. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing fine. You're in um, Texas, is that right? I am. I'm in Dallas. You're on book tour? I, yes, I am. Are you speaking to the governor and the uh, senators there? Or who are you speaking to? <laughs> I'm speaking to a group <laughs> called the Dallas Friday Group. Oh, really? Uh, uh, which I think is, is a group of uh, downtown leaders. Oh, that's great. Well, that sounds, uh, yeah, that's, that sounds very interesting. I should tell our audience that we're talking to James Mann today, uh, who is the author of The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan, A History of the End of the Cold War. Um, I have followed... James's work for quite a while. As I was telling him in the pre-interview, I used to work for a magazine, and um, I got to read a lot of books. There were a lot of free books hanging out, and most of them I paid absolutely no regard to. Um, and I saw his Rise of the Vulcans, and I thought, you know, this is a really great topic. Why don't I actually take the time to read this thing? And I did, and uh, I would recommend it absolutely to anyone. I mean, it, pushed, it, it puts uh, Bush's foreign policy in, in just the right perspective. And so I'd just like to um, fawningly congratulate you, James, on that book. <laughs> well, thanks. It was fun to write. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, let me ask you, though, uh, to uh, begin by just saying a few words about yourself. That is kind of where you were born, where you grew up, how you became interested in writing history. Um, well, I've, I've spent most of my career as as a newspaper reporter um, or columnist. I, I really spent about 30 years of my life in, in newspapers. I grew up in upstate New York in Albany. Uh, went off to, to college in Boston. I was about to go to medical school uh, mm-hmm. simply because I came from a family of doctors and didn't know, have a clue what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Took the absolute bare minimum, bare, bare minimum pre-med courses, mm-hmm. you know, applied, got in, and uh, the summer after senior year of college decided actually what I really wanted to do was write. And I went out and took a job for a year. Uh, with a small town uh, newspaper, a lousy newspaper, but one that was, uh, I, I never had so much fun in my life. Mm-hmm. And I asked for another year of leave of absence, and I forget when the leaves of absence stopped, but I'm certainly <laughs> on about a 30, 35 year uh, leave of absence from medical school and mm-hmm. more. Um, and I worked for newspapers really then uh, on and off for 
um, for three decades uh, um, and did a lot of different things. I had a an early existence covering um, the Supreme Court and law, went off to China, um, and that was really the beginning of writing books as well. I was the uh, Beijing correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Mm-hmm. And um, while I was in China, this was in the mid-'80s, kind of watched American businessmen arrive in China with... Uh, Dollar signs in their eyes, uh, you know, if we can only sell one X, yeah. uh, and uh, decided to just follow one company um, and the problems that it had because mostly these dreams were not being realized. And uh, wrote my first book, which was called Beijing Jeep, and it was about American Motors, eventually Chrysler's problems in China. Mm-hmm. And I came back and I really um, worked on, for, for the Los Angeles Times, on things related to Asia, but in Washington. Um, for another oh, 10 or 12 years, uh, and in the course of that, uh, ended up doing a book on America's diplomacy with China, really for about 30 years. Um, it, it grew out of a huge uh, and, and unusually ter- successful Freedom of Information Act request on about <laughs> American diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my second book, and I found as I was doing that, this is in the late 90s, uh, that I really enjoyed writing books more than newspapers. The cliche about writing books is, you know, they're fun to have written, but they're they're hell to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually found that I enjoyed the process of doing books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the beginning of this decade, in about 2001, I, um, with my kids' college tuition paid, I left and uh, <laughs> and uh, went off to um, write books full time and and worked on Rise of the Vulcans, uh, which was the the history of of the Bush work cabinet, the leading people in it, mm-hmm. and have been writing books since. I mean, this is, I, I really started this current book on on uh, Ronald Reagan um, immediately uh, as an outgrowth of the, the Vulcans book, although I did take time off from it uh, for a good year or so to do a very short essay book on China mm-hmm. uh, that came out in between Vulcans in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Well, I was going to say, when you mentioned that you were the uh, Beijing correspondent for the L.A. Times, I was going to interject for our younger readers and explain what a correspondent was, because they really don't have many of them anymore. Is such a career possible anymore for those of our audience who... Ouch, that's a very painful question, uh, because the number of uh, newspaper car- the number of newspapers itself is declining, um, and the number of correspondents is declining. There are still foreign correspondents mm-hmm. um, for, for major newspapers, fewer than there used to be. A, car- a foreign correspondent is someone who's stationed <laughs> overseas in a, in a capital, uh, usually, and, and writes about um, uh, everything that goes on in a country or a whole region. Mm-hmm. And so in my case, uh, I was writing about you know, anything that happened in, in uh, China, the PRC, yeah. or in Hong Kong or Taiwan. Yeah, sure. No, I understand. No, I, um, you know, I hear from a lot of people who uh, listen to the podcast and uh, who um, are interested in, 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 in pursuing careers in nonfiction, let's put it that way. And uh, I always try to be as encouraging as I can. I've worked in a couple of aspects of nonfiction as you have. I was, had a brief career as kind of a journalist, and um, I've written academic books and sort of semi-popular books. And it's, it's a kind of a tough road to hoe, uh, but, it, but it's, um, I think it can be done. I, th- I think if, it, if the work is what really matters to you, I think, I think you can do it. Um, but uh, it's, I mean, it is as you say. Things are, things are changing. The marketplace for nonfiction stuff is, is, um, is, uh, is challenging now. Let's put it that way. 
Um, I think that's fair. Yeah, let's put it that way. So anyway, let's turn directly to um, the uh, <clears throat> the Rebellion of Ronald Reagan. I love the title. What, what, what prompted you to write this book? You know, as I was writing this book on the Bush War Cabinet, I was tracking um, the careers of the leading members over a period of decades. And there is one episode in the 1980s um, that formed a chapter of the book, which was about uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld serving on uh, in a very, very covert program of the 1980s in which teams of federal officials would practice uh, going out from Washington, flying out secretly, and and practice running the federal government in a time of nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say at this time neither neither Rumsfeld nor Cheney was was part of the executive branch of the of the Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the point because they were choosing to run for, um, for for these teams people who were not part of the executive branch, but had run the government in one way or another before both of them had been White House chiefs of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and these these exercises were what happens if the, you know the president and vice president are dead or incapacitated in nuclear war, who runs the government? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that stood as a chapter in the book, but it got me to thinking. I just wanted to pursue because this program was was clandestine, hadn't come to light before. Mm-hmm. Um, it you know it really formed the basis of what a lot of other people then later wrote about the Bush administration. If you look at, at Jane Mayer's wonderful um, book, The Dark Side, you'll find that it, it begins with this this what I found uh, here um, with with Cheney and this program. Um, and I just wanted to look again at these nuclear exercises. What did they mean? And what did they tell you? Was was a uh, was a president of the United States that uh, determined to uh, or interested in the possibility of nuclear war with the Soviet Union, and that mm-hmm. was that was really sort of the starting point for the book. Um, in fact, the book came out in a different place because I, I was focusing on Reagan. And as I you know as I went through the archives and did the interviews, it was very clear to me um, that that uh, uh, in the nuclear debates of the 1980s that surprisingly Reagan, despite his image, um, was not among the hawks. He was actually uh, pursuing uh, uh, anti-nuclear policies or the reduction of nuclear weapons more than the sort of traditional Washington establishment. In fact, this is uh, particularly after the 1986 summit in Reykjavik, Mm -hmm. uh, and that, um, in fact, uh, Reagan himself seemed to be genuinely um, uh, opposed to nuclear weapons and 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 pushing for reductions mm-hmm. uh, for for reasons I try to explore in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice segue. Actually, uh, most of our audience will know, of course, that Reagan made his entire career in the um, pursuit of anti-communism. Um, how did he bridge the gap between um, his older anti-communist views? And his more—I'm um, not quite sure how to characterize them—liberal uh, views of the mid to later '80s. How did he travel that road? It's quite interesting, in in, in a way that would uh, would not probably survive uh, traditional logic. But uh, there were two elements. Um, I mean, the first was the ascent of Gorbachev. 
uh, and Reagan proceeds into symmetry with, with Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is that Reagan's anti-communism was formed in the 1940s when Reagan was in Hollywood, very active, politically active, um, uh, you know, in the battles over uh, alleged, you know, con- communists in, in, in labor unions mm-hmm. uh, in, in Hollywood. Um, and his view at that time was uh, that r- really the communists were bad people. <laughs> they, they were a, a breed apart, uh, and uh, there was a strong moral element to it. I, I contrast uh, Reagan in the 40s to Nixon. I mean, Reagan and Nixon are the two leading anti-communist politicians of the Cold War era. Mm-hmm. If you go from the 40s through the 80s, there, I think there are ten elections, and, and Nixon or Reagan is, is you know, <laughs> is a, a leading figure in every in eight of those ten elections. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nixon actually becomes a politician first, and then seizes on communism as an issue afterwards. Mm-hmm. It was he, he saw the political importance of it. For Reagan, it's much more moral. I mean, it, it is it is communism that leads him into politics in, in the forties. Uh, well, you, let me move ahead to the mid-80s. Um, he begins to change his view as he's dealing with Soviet officials, uh, particularly Gorbachev in the, in the mid-80s, and mm-hmm. you get this sense that, um, you know, if, if there is a communist leader I can deal with, um, then, then maybe my views change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as he deals with Gorbachev, you get a sense... Uh, that his entire view of, of, of communism changes. There's a funny uh, anecdote e- even before Gorbachev arrives. I think this is in '84, where the so- th- '83 or four, the Soviet ambassador to Washington, uh, familiar figure Anatoly Dobrynin, who's been around for decades, comes in to meet Reagan. And Dobrynin's a very sophisticated guy uh, and talks to Reagan. Reagan talks to him. Um, and Reagan's under no illusions, but he still, he asks his advisors afterwards, is that guy really a communist? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this is not someone who's been, he, his, his sole meeting with the Soviet leader was at a, uh, a, a party with Hollywood people, uh, and California people for Brezhnev in, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then there's one other factor on Reagan's change, and that's what I mentioned before. It's, it's, it's really nuclear weapons. Um, he really, uh, by about 1983, you can see the concern um, in in several ways. Um, he is, re- you know, responding to a the anti-nuclear movement of the early 1980s. Uh, Reagan himself is given a special showing of the documentary about the impact of nuclear war that um, grew out of uh, that movement called mm-hmm. The Day After mm-hmm. in the fall of 83. And then there is a very strange episode at the end of 1983 in which it looks as though the the Soviet Union, Soviet officials seem to be generally afraid that what are NATO exercises, military exercises, are actually the beginning of a nuclear attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, I mean, there's tremendous internal debate about why in, in Washington are they really afraid or are they not? But but um, it did seem, and and there were uh, American, not American but British, um, an intelligence agent working in um, with the Soviets um, 
who came to his own handlers and said, wait a minute, you know, uh, he seemed to believe that the Soviets believed this and said, you know, what are you, are you guys really planning nuclear war? I mean, we, we, you know, I thought I was working with you all in the interests of peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these add up to you begin to see Reagan um, start to turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard to analyze it at the beginning, at the beginning of 84, because he has political reasons to do it. it may, this may have started as... as presidential politics he's on he's campaigning against uh or walter mondale is starting to campaign against him um and so he has political reasons and people are skeptical and and right to be skeptical mm-hmm. uh but by 1985 when uh when gorbachev takes over he writes a letter to gorbachev immediately and you begin to see him changing and as he does um uh two different constituencies in washington um, uh, the conservatives, the, the political right, and neoconservatives, and the sort of traditional realists, um, people like uh, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, Franz Scowcroft, um, really part company w- with Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see Reagan, the, you know, for years, the symbol of the right being criticized for going too far with Gorbachev, maybe being snookered by Gorbachev. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean, there are a lot of threads we could pull on there. Um, I, I'm particularly interested in the way Reagan understood communism, because one of the things that you say in the book, and I think it's quite correct, is that most of his dealings with people on the left, and particularly communists, had been in the 50s. And, and if I recall what you say correctly, he just conceived of them as deceitful people. And that's what he didn't like about them, that they were liars, that they were trying to hide something. And, and in that, in a certain paradoxical way, he wasn't wrong, because they were under the gun, and they were uh, actively encouraged to deny that they'd ever had any association with a communist party. So in certain right. sense, and what, there what, were communists in the Soviet Union. Yeah, there were. He was like, why won't you just stand up for what you believe? But then there's a yeah. long period where you know, he's governor of California, so he has no foreign policy experience whatsoever. I mean, I suppose he does have the kind of Sarah Palin foreign policy experience, but not, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't think about Soviet, the Soviet Union. He doesn't think about the Warsaw Pact. He doesn't meet any of these people. And so the, communi- the communism that is in his head, it seems to me, is, is that leftover communism of the kind of deceitful cloak-and-dagger type that he encountered in the 50s. And, and that last, so when he takes off, one of his first press, press conferences, when he takes office, uh, in 1981, um, he goes on a riff about how so, um, the Soviets lie and cheat and steal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, his Secretary of State uh, at the time, Alexander Haig himself, not exactly a dove to say the least, um, is horrified that that you know Reagan said this at his first press conference. And then Reagan walks out with his his National Security Advisor Dick Allen and says to him, "Well, well, you know." They do lie in cheating. Exactly. Well, you know, one of the things that we used to discuss, I was uh, sort of uh, in training to be part of the American um, Soviological establishment in the in the mid 80s. And, you know, one of the things that we used to discuss was whether we should take seriously these, um, you know, uh, sometimes quite vociferous claims on the part of the Soviets that they were still pursuing what we would call world revolution, um, whether it was just. Um, you know, uh, something that they were kind of used to doing and were doing for internal purposes, or that they were relatively serious about it. Um, and I remember the question that I was asking myself was, why, why did they say it at all? I mean, I, on the one hand, they're not, um, it's not as if there is going to be a world revolution. <laughs> it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, and on, you know, so that kind of made them look silly. And on the other hand, um, you know, it, it, it certainly 
pissed us off. I, I just didn't really quite understand why they were doing it. And, and I, you know, I, I think my impression of Reagan is, after having read your book, is that he was concerned about this too. He just didn't understand why they would say these things. Um, and then I think that, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about this, once he meets, and really kind of for the first time, once he starts to meet Soviets, and particularly Gorbachev, um, then, you know, he, he does have kind of a, he does have kind of epiphany about it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about his relationship with Gorbachev. Uh, well, you know, they meet they meet um, four times while he's president, and then there's actually a, there's you can call it a fifth summit at the end of Reagan's presidency. It's it's he's he's um, uh, Bush has already been elected, and there's a meeting with the three of them. Um, his first meeting in 1985, Gorbachev comes back to Moscow and 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 all and to Europe, Eastern Europe, and says this guy's a Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, in '86, it probably, you know the most significant um, in substance terms of their summits um, in Reykjavik, they seem to form a um, a a very important relationship. I mean, this is a summit where they this is the summit where they they talk about the possibility of abolishing nuclear weapons. Reagan actually says, I, you know, I wouldn't care. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to work out a deal, and really the focus of the deal is on uh, reduction missiles. But they all, and they talk about nuclear weapons as well, mm-hmm. and even talk about abolition. And, mm-hmm. and uh, people back in Washington and, and you know, Joint Chiefs of Staff are, are, are horrified. Um, but Reagan, uh, Gorbachev comes back after that meeting and says, uh, um, you know, writes and says um, that really he's he now has a different view of Reagan that 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 it's all going to work out with Reagan. This is a guy that they can they can uh, deal with, mm-hmm. and they proceed to have two more summits, which um, whose impact is probably um, more political um, than than substantive in the way that Reykjavik was. I mean, they uh, they have. But but um, they have summits in Washington and in Moscow, so these are no longer on neutral turf. Mm-hmm. Um, this is you know the leader of the Soviet Union coming to the American capital, a very important step towards sort of ease, ease, towards easing the tensions of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And then Reagan going to Moscow, and and in Moscow he gets asked, um, "Do you still consider this an evil empire?" And he says, "No, that was that was another time, another mm-hmm. place." And he gets asked. Why do you think that? And he focuses immediately directly on uh, because they have a different leader, Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. Um, having having said all that, they do form this relationship. It is a personal relationship, um, but I don't want to make it sound. And that the book describes this, it did not go down easily from minute to minute as they meet mm-hmm. uh, because their styles are so different. Reagan sometimes drew, uh, drove Gorbachev crazy. Uh, because Gorbachev would come into a meeting with, you know, uh, Gorbachev was, was a debater and a very good one, mm-hmm. um, and very policy oriented. He would come in with an agenda, he'd, he'd start on it, and Reagan, as he did with other leaders, would just start telling stories and anecdotes. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Reagan, uh, Gorbachev would come in and Reagan would, would, Pull out his supply of anti-communist jokes. Yeah, right. with, uh, yeah. You know, what, what are the four things wrong with Soviet agriculture? Spring, summer, fall, and winter. Yeah. Um, or there's one about uh, 
uh, Brezhnev and his fancy cars, and and his his Brezhnev's mother asks him, yeah, but what happens if the commies come and take him away? <laughs> um, and and this kind this is kind of stuff was very hard for Gorbachev to deal with. Yeah, no, I can I can I can I can understand that. It must have been very disarming, though. Let me let me go back to um, uh, his relationship with. Uh, the American foreign policy establishment. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm particularly interested in this because I was sort of in training to become one of the people that advised them at the time. And you know, one of the things that is striking about your book uh, is is the degree to which um, many people who are in high places today were dead wrong about uh, the way we could most profitably deal with Gorbachev, Perestroika, and the Soviet Union. Um, why exactly do you think, maybe you could mention some of them, and why exactly do you think they were so wrong or risk-averse about moving forward with these things? I think they, um, they simply failed to recognize the possibility of change. Mm-hmm. I mean, Reagan, Reagan is interested in ideas and people, and his Secretary of State, George Shultz, is interested in economics. The, you know, the more traditional view, which is embodied by um, Nixon... Henry Kissinger, mm-hmm. um, Brand Scowcroft, is to, was to see the Cold War as geopolitics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is their sincere view. It's, it's you know, as, as you count up the number of nuclear weapons, the number of missiles, the number of tanks, um, who has an advantage in country X and who has an advantage in country Y. Um, and certainly that's, you know, that's part of it, but it doesn't recognize uh, uh, the importance of ideas, of economics, um, and and in different ways, um, Reagan and Schultz did. So Nixon, um, as the embodiment of, of the traditional view, goes to Moscow in 1986 and uh, meets Gorbachev. And, uh, and this part is uniquely Nixon. He loved, he, he saw himself as the, the collective memory of, of Chinese and Soviet leaders. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what Nixon was about. So he starts to compare... Uh, Gorbachev meeting him for the first time, to Khrushchev and and to Brezhnev, and he says, you know, uh, he he says, um, really that that Gorbachev is like them, only more subtle, and you know, inside the velvet glove there is a steel fist. <laughs> Um, and I call this, I mean, he, you know, this is, he's sincerely recording this. I call it the, me- the uh, I, you know, I'm somewhat joking, but in the book I call this the metallurgy of the Cold War because over and over and over again you see this, these, the, the, the you know, iron, steel, uh, flinty eyes. Um, and, and really it was a fabulous misperception of, of, of Gorbachev. Um, uh, uh, the in in um, foreign policy terms, um, Kissinger argued in writing throughout this period, uh, he wasn't alone, um, that Gorbachev was seeking to rebuild, to reassert Soviet power around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the main uh, proponent of this point of view inside the U.S. government um, was the CIA's leading Soviet expert, a guy by the name of, of uh, Bob Gates. That would be yes, Secretary Robert of Defense, Gates. Robert yes, Gates. Yes, Robert Gates. Uh, and he, sna- he is, it, you know, to his, to his credit, admitted um, a decade or so later that he, he got, you know, he was wrong at first. Um, so, so, you know, you get this perception that things haven't changed, that if the Soviet Union has a new leader, um, and that leader has been brought in by, uh, you know, above all, Andropov of um, the KGB. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that he must be the same as as previous previous Soviet leaders, yeah. and not not contemplating the existence of change or of of just economic deterioration. Yeah, I mean, I think you do a good job of capturing um, the difference between what the foreign policy establishment in Washington thought on the one hand about uh, Gorbachev and the Soviet Union, and what those of us who are actually going there and studying it thought. Um, you know, we, we at least I took seriously the notion that the Soviet Union was a kind of dictatorship. And so uh, I and the people around me were pretty certain that if Gorbachev wanted to change things, he probably could do it. Now, he would risk a coup d'etat in doing it. And, and in fact, that, that's what and happened that's, at the end right. of it. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a dictatorship, and he was running the show. And the only way to get rid of him is the way that they got rid of Khrushchev. And Khrushchev was an effective dictator as well and sort of changed things. Um, I guess, yeah, the, 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 so in a sense, I don't blame the foreign policy establishment for being a little bit skeptical, but they – they, um, they don't seem to have believed what they said, which is to say the place is a dictatorship and it has a dictator because they were kept saying that Gorbachev, you know, really what he was, you know, that he was somehow a tool of these, of these, of these uh, you know, behind the scenes forces. And I, and I just, I don't think that's true. And I think, you know, I have to credit Reagan's bravery for saying, yeah, well, all that's BS because, you know, I have met the guy, I've seen what's happening. Look at the reports you can read in the newspaper about what's going on in the Soviet Union. It's really changing quite radically. And the, and the, and the interesting thing is how, and this comes out very well in your book, is how things kept, once Reagan had said this to the foreign policy establishment, kind of rejected them, and including the punditocracy, people like Will and things like this. These, I, it's astounding to me how often these people are wrong about everything, but um, it was how, how, how things kept breaking in Reagan's favor, how Gorbachev would do something that would demonstrate again that he was... Uh, really kind of acting in good faith, trying to change the Soviet Union. You know, for instance, when he goes, uh, you know, he meets with the Warsaw Pact leaders and he tells them that now we're just a defensive pact. That's it. We're no, there's no more of this, you know. And, and then he kind of suggests to them that they're not going to, um, you know, protect – the Soviet Union is not going to protect them anymore. Um, this, these are things that Reagan didn't do, but they broke in his favor. Um, and they kind of put the lie to what the what the foreign policy establishment and the, uh, and the punditocracy were saying. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about – I'm um, just a, the thing, and I remember this very well. That that Reykjavik meeting was absolutely breathtaking. I mean, I could not wait to read the news the next day because I couldn't believe what I was reading. Um, because finally they were doing what common sense seems to dictate. They were saying, "Why don't we just get rid of these things?" Um, maybe you could just talk about how, how that developed. Was that on the agenda? <laughs> there was an agenda item: eliminate nuclear weapons. Actually, um, <laughs> let, let me let me uh, no, it wasn't. Let me step back though. Um, Actually, the the way the summit came about um, was itself um, first an initiative by, by by Gorbachev. His own uh, foreign ministry sends him um, uh, over the in the summer of '86 sort of the usual proposals in the and the usual Soviet formulations to bring the United States. Uh -huh. And Gorbachev um, writes, you know, this is this is crap. Sends it back. <laughs> um, Gorbachev is you know is essentially bringing in his own. His own people, um, such as, such as Shevardnadze, but yeah. but he's really sort of throwing out the the traditional um, Soviet foreign policy people. Um, gets an initiative ha and brings in to Reykjavik a a series. Uh, well, one other step on on the way. Um, Reykjavik is then supposed to be just a preparatory meeting. It's mm -hmm. supposed to be uh, the the plan had been to have two summits in in. Washington and Moscow. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what they had decided in Geneva the previous year. Mm -hmm. um, and Reykjavik was supposed to, to prepare for that. Instead, Gorbachev brings in um, uh, a dramatic 
dramatically different series of arms control proposals. And they really spend a couple days on these. Uh, they, you know, Soviets are making much, uh, way, uh, far different offers than they've made before. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the U.S. is interested in desperately trying to respond. Um, and you know, no, no one, no one comes in there with the <coughs> idea of let's let's um, abolish nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, no, it's part of, but it is part of the discussion. They they stick on on Reagan's strategic defense initiative, mm-hmm. and he and Gorbachev keeps making these offers, which Reagan is is um, extremely interested in. Um, if only the United States will um, will rein in uh, SDI. SDI, yeah, and. Um, Reagan uh, has gone in with the idea that he's not going to, and he he sticks to that um, with some agonizing. I mean, he leaves that summit very frustrated, and by by all you know descriptions of the people around him and personal aides, uh, really upset because he mm-hmm. thought he was getting close to a deal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and wasn't you know 100% sure he was doing the right yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me ask you a, a question uh, precisely on that point about Reagan's understanding of nuclear weapons. And, and I, I believe, and I could be totally wrong about this, but I got this impression from reading Rise of the Vulcans. And that is that Reagan despised nuclear weapons so much that he kind of had it in his heart or mind or somewhere that he wouldn't use them in any case. Is that true? I never found a document specifically saying that. It's very clear that when he first, when he saw in the early 80s the the specific American war plans, um, it's called the PSYOP, uh, that he was he was horrified. Now I have to you know I have to say, um, for his story, there are there are two different interpretations out there now on Reagan. Um, I mean I'm mine is uh, is one of two different. There is an interpretation that that really Reagan was always opposed to nuclear weapons. That this is something that went back decades. And there are a couple words in a speech he gave at the 76 Republican Convention that are interpreted that way. I, I, I don't believe that. I mean, I, I accept the second point of view, which is that he changed in his early years in office mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in the White House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one, one of the things that I, I, I do wonder about, I mean, having read a number of things about his attitude toward them, is that um, I, I think he felt that they were just a huge burden on him. That he did not, he did not think that any person should have this responsibility, and that it was it was illogical to put this amount of responsibility on anybody. And so, you know, I think that's what what was behind his his, his hatred of them. I think that's right. You, you and you have this amazing anecdote of, of Reagan's last day in office on you know January twentieth, nineteen eighty nine, uh, when he. he thought that his day was through on the, you know, his work was through on the 19th. He didn't know he had to show up on the 20th. His advisors <laughs> told him that he did. He's now, you know, well into it, well, well into his 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shows up that last day and he looks at his aides and he says, can I give this back to you now? And he pulls out the, you know, the code card yeah. that only presidents have and tries to give it to him. This yeah. is, I don't know whether it's nine in the morning. Um, or nine nine thirty, and they say no, no, you know, no, Mr. President, you got to hold on to that till yeah. till you leave with with Bush for the inaugural. Right, great. Let, let me let me ask another question about um, sort of Reagan's impression of the Cold War, and I, and I found this, and I, I found myself reaching an odd conclusion. Reagan is not known for being a, a great uh, reader or a great mind or a very thoughtful person, not very uh, reflective, is what a lot of people say about him, um, and, and but. In a sense, uh, and, and again, I could be going uh, way off the reservation here, um, 
he had a much better view or better understanding of the volatility of history than the people around him. Because, I, I, again, I got this impression from reading the book, he, he didn't believe that the Cold War was a permanent thing at all. He thought it was going to end, and he thought that one side was going to win. Um, whereas, and again, I'm speaking to my own training, this was never brought up. In, you know, and I was at all the right places talking to all the right people. It was never brought up that the Cold War might end one day. It was a permanent aspect of the, of the geopolitical scene. Maybe you could talk about how Reagan came to this, this idea. You know, uh, yeah, what, what you're describing is very much linked to, I think, the traditional and the realist view of the Cold War at the time. That no, you know, of course, no one could win because no, you know, no rational government is going to um, engage in nuclear war, and no one could win a war, you know, with nuclear weapons or whatever. Yeah, right. Um, and so, of course, it wasn't going to end. You know, Soviets were too powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Re- Reagan um, really seemed to recognize the possibilities of transformation, both, you know, the importance of ideas, the importance of economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was part of his uh, re- very unconventional view um, of the Cold War. I, You know, he did seem to recognize uh, the importance of ideas. I mean, this is, this is a guy, he, he himself um, is not, you know, he's, he, to say, the, you know, he's not an intellectual, but he does recognize uh, through these years the importance of ideas. To, to mention um, uh, a couple of things uh, from um, the previous book, Rise of the Balkans, Reagan, um, he makes his inroads with with conservative Democrats or the neoconservatives in the late 70s by reading an essay by Jean Kirkpatrick um, called Dictatorships and Democracy Mm -hmm. and writing her a note saying he liked it and and bringing um, her, she's very nervous about joining the Republicans, but bringing her along. Um, You know, he is through this time in touch with um, people like Buckley, reading the National Review, um, so he is interested in, in, in ideas in, in his own way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think one thing that you can say about him is that um, he had an actual, uh, I don't exactly know how to characterize it, he had a change of heart, a kind of conversion experience early in his own career because he started, I don't know if it, on the left is the right thing to say about someone who's a union organizer, but he clearly took ideas seriously enough to really change his own mind about where he stood politically. Um, I don't know the details of this myself because I don't know Reagan's biography very well, but he didn't start as a Republican. Um, so he came over. Right. In fact, there's a, um, I found there's a very funny story on that because, yes, he becomes uh, – it's anti-communism that drives him in, begins to make him more conservative. He also, he's also becomes increasingly conservative on economic issues. In 1960, I mean, and he and – he, supports Eisenhower in the 50s, but he's still a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And in 1960, or before the 60 election, he goes to Richard Nixon, who he, he doesn't know very well, and says that he's prepared to endorse him. Mm-hmm. Um, Reagan is at that point still a Democrat, and he says, I'm going to endorse you, and I'm going I'm to change my party, re- um, party registration to Republican. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nixon says... You know, he'd love Reagan's endorsement, but please don't change your registration. I'd much rather have a Democrat, you as a Democrat, supporting me. Well, that's um, a- ironically, because, you know, Reagan becomes two decades later um, the most successful at bringing Democrats into, uh, into you know, to support him, that they're the Reagan Democrats. Nixon yeah. never could get Democrats to support him. Yeah. It's, it's funny, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I know this will sound cliche, but uh, Reagan was a, a Midwesterner. Um, wasn't he? Where was he born? 
Yeah, he, he, he was, was Midwestern. Illinois. Yeah, Illinois. And I'm, I'm a Midwesterner, and I had a kind of similar conversion experience. I remember that before I went to the Soviet Union for the first time in uh, 1984, I was quite a Democrat. And then I came back, and I was just like, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I saw what, what's happening over there, and I'm here to tell you, Mom, yeah. <laughs> there's something funny going on over there. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I kind of understand this mentality. Well, let's talk about just a little bit how he, he came to, to this understanding. And, there's a, and this is, to me, was just one of the most fascinating parts of the book, and that is uh, his association with Susan Massey. Just go ahead and talk a little bit about Susan Massey, who she was, and how she uh, really kind of helped change um, the world, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, um, you know, you said you were going over back and forth to the Soviet Union and, and you know, getting a feel for, for Soviet life. Uh, Suzanne Massey was uh, uh, an American author. She had uh, written uh, with her husband uh, a book that had nothing to do with politics, uh, Nicholas and Alexandra, about the Tsar and, and his wife. In fact, uh, the, the Masseys were the parents of, of um, a child with hemophilia, and uh, so they mm-hmm. kind of identified with the, the Tsar. Um, in, the seven, it, well, in the early 80s, she's traveling back and forth to the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, during this uh, period in 1983, some Soviet officials, uh, it, where tensions are at their peak, some Soviet official tells her, you don't know how close we are to war. And she's quite disturbed. She comes back. She wants to talk to um, the Reagan White House. She, had, she was extremely good at making connections to high-level people. And the National Security Advisor, Robert McFarlane, wants to bring her in to um, give Reagan a sense of life in the Soviet Union, and I think also to moderate Reagan's hawkish views. Mm-hmm. And she goes in, it's actually a formal meeting, Reagan listens to her, and he, he kind of takes to this, and he keeps inviting her back over and over again. Um, and she gives him just a sense of what's going on on the streets there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, he, she, she gives him sort of stories and anecdotes um, and a feel for things that somehow he just can't get from his intelligence briefings <laughs> and so on and, and his, his arms control debate. So, you know, the famous line that used to drive us all crazy because Reagan repeated it so often, trust but verify. That uh-huh. was a, that was a Suzanne Massey. Uh-huh. Um, and... Massey never changes. I mean, her own view was that there should be better relations between the Russian people. She's very much a, a, a Russophile, I guess I would say, yeah. um, and uh, and the United States. Uh, and she's a constant. But Reagan is is changing as he's meeting with Gorbachev. By uh, w- within three years, uh, the National Security Council, which brought her in in the first place, is now saying. Keep this woman away from Reagan. Uh, she might be, you know, maybe she's a KGB plant. No evidence of that. Um, uh, but you know, one way or another, um, we don't like the influence she might have on Reagan. Yeah, it's funny because when I was a, uh, I was a, a junior criminologist, uh, we knew nothing about this. I mean, nothing. I, I, and I was deep in the academy at the time. If you would have mentioned who Susan Massey was, I would have said I didn't know. I, right. I, I, I knew who her husband was because he was a little bit better known, and they had written Nicholas and Alexandra, which is, became a movie, and we'd kind of seen it. Who she was, nobody knew. As far as we knew, the people that were talking to Reagan were people like Richard Pipes, um, who I know, and um, you know, he, the, and he was in the, the National Security Administration itself. So you know, the, and it's still said today that Reagan's views of the Soviet Union are the result of talking to pipes. I had never heard of Massey talking to Reagan before I read your book. So, 
You probably have an academic article here somewhere. Not that you would want to write such a thing. <laughs> well, Pipes, you know, Pipes, you know, uh, you, you can find in his Pipes, Pipes did a memoir um, which shows, first of all, the frustration um, that Reagan was never, yeah, never listened to. Yeah, was right. never what Reagan quite wanted him to be. Yeah. I mean, you can respect in in some ways. Yeah. Um, uh, but also disappointment, yeah. and also that at the key moment, because he drafts a very important um, uh, order, um, you know, national security national directive security. on Soviet policy, which mm-hmm. was was important. But that um, that during this period, Reagan always said, um, "I, I want to do everything I can to maintain the possibility of dialogue uh, and negotiations." Yeah. With the and and Pipes is you know again he's he's I actually reviewed that book and and a couple of others and I and, and I know Pipes a little bit he is a he's a very very hawkish person and and you know much to his credit um, he never really bought any of what Reagan would call uh, the Soviets lies or prevarications I mean right. from, the, from very early in his career right um, and it was the kind of career that you couldn't have I mean his career started basically in the fifties you couldn't have it in the sixties because if you said the kind of things he was saying and he was already tenured at the time you would never ever work. Because he basically he ba- you know he he basically said the Soviet Union is an evil empire, um, mm-hmm. and, and he said it at every chance he got. But you can you can see, and I do remember the passages in his memoir about trying to talk to Reagan and Reagan's people, because Pipes is intellectual, he really is. He loves to talk about ideas, and uh, Reagan, I guess, just didn't operate on that level. And Pipes was very frustrated. I mean, I think he even says at a certain moment in the book, and Pipes is this way that he was disappointed in Reagan. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's. Um, I would, you know, I have a different perspective on pipes. This is more from as a newspaper reporter yeah. than than as my uh, than, than than as author. In reading his memoir, I got the idea um, that, that that he hoped and and really was thought when he came to be, you know, p- possibly another Henry Kissinger. Yeah. That, but that where Kissinger really took to the bureaucracy and the yeah. bureaucratic intrigues of Washington. That, that Pipes was really an academic, and that he just he couldn't do the you know the the fast footwork of you know Washington bureaucracy that Kissinger mastered. No, no, I mean I think that's exactly right, and and he he and to, and to give Pipes credit, he he basically says that in the book that he was cut from a yeah. different cloth, and you know his whole academic career was about one sort of rebellion or another. I mean he just was the kind of guy who would say whatever. He thought was true, and uh, that is not what you do inside a bureaucracy. I can tell you, and uh, it's uh, it will yeah it'll get you fired. And you know, and he left. Pipes left eventually, obviously. So right. let me let me ask you about this. There's a you spend a long time in the book, um, and very interestingly, talking about the uh, the the famous um, um, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall line. Maybe you could talk about the genesis of that. Right. Um, Reagan is preparing to go to Berlin in, in early uh, 1987. It's, it's the 350th anniversary of the founding of Berlin. I never quite figured out why that was so special. But the, <laughs> the, the Queen of England is going and Mitterrand is going um, and Reagan's, Reagan's going to go. And his domestic team sees this as a chance. Hello? Yeah, I'm still here. Are you there? Sorry, yeah. yeah just... um, Reagan sees this as a chance to help um, revive uh, his presidency after Iran Contra, mm-hmm. and as the um, as the speech, well, two things happen. There's a huge battle with the um, West Berlin authorities over where the speech should be. Uh, the Americans want it in front of the Brandenburg Gate, and the West Berlin authorities are nervous about that. Um, interestingly, just as they were nervous about uh, Barack Obama and where he should speak mm-hmm. um, in the summer of 2008. 
Um, and then there's a there, there's a speechwriter on the in the Reagan White House who uh, goes to Berlin and is is told, you know, you know, if Gorbachev's really serious about uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, he should maybe he should tear down the wall. And the speech, you know, this is in conversation at dinner, and the speechwriter um, comes back and he decides that should be the heart of the speech. Thinking of of John Kennedy, he puts the words in German. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mackenzie Dieses Toralf, and um, you know. Anyway, it ends up uh, in the original draft of the speech, and then there's vir- a virtual revolt by the State Department and the <laughs> National Security Council. Get those words out of there. Um, why it was really it wasn't tear down the wall, which Reagan had already said, by the way. Um, it wasn't, um, and it wasn't you know the you know that the wall should come down. It was Mr. Gorbachev because mm-hmm. they were worried. Um, sincerely, that this speech would get Gorbachev in trouble with hardliners. Mm-hmm. And Reagan, having met Gorbachev, um, decided that, you know, Gorbachev could handle it, it would roll off his back, that Gorbachev care, cared about the diplomacy, and that, you know, up to a point anyway, he could take the rhetoric. And so the line stays in the speech. But you can, as I track the archives on this, um, over, you know, over weeks, you get um, a furious battle over the, over this speech, um, uh, and it's even it even gets funny. I mean, the, the, once the State Department and NSC get into it, they battle every word. So there's a mm-hmm. there's a reference in there to um, a Marlena Dietrich song. Um, yeah. I still have a I still have a suitcase in Berlin, and, uh-huh. and they want it out because it might suggest that someone in Berlin is nostalgic, or that they might leave West Berlin. Um, so the some of the editing is just plain funny, but the the heart of it was they wanted uh, to get uh, that line to Gorbachev out, and the result of it all, once the speech is given, is not not that Gorbachev says, "Oh my God, I got to tear down the wall." There's zero evidence of that, but the impact is really on on Eric Honecker, yeah, right, uh, no, the exactly. East German yeah. leader, who who you know kind of. He doesn't want to tear down the wall, to say the least, but he, he wants to be asked. It's his wall. Right? <laughs> and, you know, those lines suggest that Honecker is, is uh, really you know, um, at the sufferance of, of Soviet officials, which was true, uh-huh. and which, which American officials didn't usually say. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And that, that is, I, I, from people who are watching the, the speech, who are kind of in the foreign policy establishment, that was the message of it, was that we understand that uh, these Eastern European uh, leaders are tools, and that they are being propped up by the Soviet Union and the threat of Soviet intervention. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I, th- there were some people, I think, on the kind of, you know, the, the, on the left who thought that, I mean, you know, East Germany and these other places were uh, actually fine socialist republics, but most people felt that they were regimes being, again, supported by the Soviet Union. And wait, is there a sense at which uh, Reagan knew, and again, I'm speculating here, Reagan knew that he, he was almost working toward Gorbachev in saying this? Because Gorbachev, in a sense, wanted to cut his obligations to Eastern Europe. I, I'm not so sure of that. Um, you know, I I think that he thought of this as as mm-hmm. um, first representing um, his own and 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 uh, universal values of of freedom, um, and second um, that he was emphasizing the differences, um, between East and West to remind people of that because there was a great concern, um, in the administration that the two Germanys might be drifting together and mm-hmm. so on. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the, no, I don't. I'm not sure. Yeah, that, no, I see what you're saying. No, I'm just yeah. speculating on. So I don't really know. So uh, let, let me ask you, kind of a, you know, a, a, you know, what what did what did when Reagan left office? What did he feel about what he had done? Um. Well, one, he was extremely satisfied. Two, um, he actually, in the months after he leaves office, uh, is quite unhappy with his successor, the, the Bush administration, which, again, contrary to stereotype, um, is much more cautious and hawkish uh, mm-hmm. in its early months uh, in dealing with the Soviets than Reagan had been. And he actually goes to, Reagan goes to Europe in the, the spring or summer of 89 and, and really um, really, you know, says publicly that the Bush administration ought to get moving in dealing with, with Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. So that's the short-term impact. Um, and then, uh, you know, as, when when the wall comes down, uh, President Bush says very little. Um, everybody replays the tear down that wall speech. Mm-hmm. Reagan Reagan's quite satisfied. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, there is no one speech or writing I can think of that re- in which Reagan really sort of reflects. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, in other than you know a fairly fairly formal way in in his memoirs on on what happened. Are there any lessons here for um, future presidents? Well, it's it's the you know one is the importance of of you know choosing the right time mm-hmm. to conduct high level diplomacy and the importance of um, of a leader willing to contemplate change mm-hmm. both in the United States um, and recognizing. Um, the possibility of that other countries can and will change that they're not necessarily what we thought they were um, five, ten, or fifteen years ago, mm-hmm. um, and that um, other leaders, uh, you know, leaders overseas can sometimes be persuaded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's ex- I think that's exactly right. And you know, it's funny because as I was reading the book and I was thinking about Gorbachev and I was thinking about Reagan. It kind of brought to mind, oddly enough, the Israeli-Palestinian situation. You know what they used to say about Yasser Arafat, that he never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. You know, I've I've always thought that the problem is a lack of leadership over there. And if they had the right leaders, then this thing could be solved. And I think that, you know, this episode shows that if you get the two right people in the right time and in the right place – Really, mountains can be moved, and, and it. You know, your book is called "The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan." It was an astoundingly brave thing he did. Uh, you know, it. I mean, in a certain sense, it also. What, one of the lessons is be old when you're in office, <laughs> because he had nothing to lose. The guy was, you know, that was it. Right. His career was over, and uh, he he's not running again. And you know, Obama right now he's running again already. I mean, good or bad, he is. But Reagan was done, and you know, I think that it was. Uh, you know, he just he he. He seized an opportunity, and he, and I, he did it. He did it masterfully, I think. And you know, your book does a terrific job of um, of describing exactly how he did it. Um, I should say, James, that we've taken up really a lot of your time, and I appreciate it. Um, let me close with our um, traditional final question, and that is, uh, what is your next book project? Well, first, uh, I need I need to remind people um, of, that I have a website. It's, it's oh, okay. www.james-man.com, which is an introduction to all my books. The next, uh, I am, since you mentioned Barack Obama, I am uh, thinking of 
doing a book similar to Rise of the Vulcans on the Democratic foreign policy team, mm-hmm. um, where the ideas come from and who the, who the people are, um, mm-hmm. center focused on uh, the Obama administration. Whether mm-hmm. that's going to work out or, or not, I'm not sure yet. If there are any, if there are any um, uh, acquisitions editors out there, um, take note. I, I think it's a terrific idea. Rise of the Vulcan was great. So, I mean, I, I really hope that you do get to write that book. I, I think it would be a valuable service um, not only to me, um, but also the nation at large, because, you know, we do need to know more about these things. And I, you know, again, the, the, the rise of the Vulcans and, and, and this book are, are just really terrific examples of um, popular history with intent. That is popular history that really matters. Um, you can read these books very profitably and you'll understand exactly what uh, is in the headlines. So, um, James Mann, I, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. OK, well, take care now. Bye bye. Right. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with James Mann about his new book, The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan, A History of the End of the Cold War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Have a great week.